0: Chapter 12, X Marks the Spot, written by Adam Elliot. God loves a good pun. A pun is a play on words, and the Bible is full of them. One example is found in Isaiah chapter 5 and verse 7. For the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel, and the men of Judah are his pleasant planting. And he looked for justice, but behold, bloodshed. For righteousness, but behold, an outcry. There are two puns in this one verse. The word for justice in Hebrew is mishpat, and the word for bloodshed is mispach. The word for righteousness is zedaka, while the word for outcry is zeekah. We decided to follow the example of wordplay for the title of this chapter. X marks the spot. This is a well-known phrase by anyone who has ever seen a hidden treasure map. A large black X always marks the spot where the treasure lies. There's a starting point, then a dotted line that swerves back and forth over and around all of the obstacles in the path, landmarks or waypoints for reference along the way, and finally, a buried treasure where X marks the spot. The Bible may be likened to a map. Jesus himself made reference to paths, pitfalls, doors, obstacles, and buried treasures in describing human life and the kingdom of God. The scriptures call being off the path, lost. When we are lost, the only thing we want is to get back on the path and get home. Jesus said, I am the path, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father. Except through me. John 14 and verse 6. Therefore, Jesus is our dotted line on God's treasure map. He is our way back home. Notice that Jesus is not our destination. He does not claim to be our home. In fact, it is Jesus Himself who tells us that in His Father's home there are many rooms and that He goes to prepare a place for us there. God is our home. God is our destination. On our map, X marks the spot where God is. X is also the Roman numeral for 10. It is the aim of this chapter to demonstrate how God and his bride are bound together forever through unbreakable vows that he calls the Ten Commandments. X marks the spot. The Ten Commandments are not a set of temporary rules that God ordered the Jews to obey. Nor did Jesus blaze a new trail to the Father, apart from the Ten Commandments. Our fathers have once again inherited lies. Jeremiah 16 and verse 19. At some point in the past, someone tampered with our map, placing detours along the path. As a result... The original path to life with God has been gathering dust through centuries of abandonment and neglect. Detours are all well and good when necessary, but few things are more frustrating than a detour that does not lead back to the original path and destination. Unnecessary detours have led us to the lie that the Ten Commandments are a relic of a bygone era, the old path to God and His salvation while Jesus brings a new path to God through new laws and a new way of doing life. Nothing, however, could be further from the truth. Off we go. Let's begin our journey by returning all the way back to the very beginning, the time before most of us would even acknowledge the existence of the law. Genesis one and verse one. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. In these founding moments, God spoke and all creation sprang into existence, culminating in that part made in his own image, Adam and Eve. It is to these two that God first spoke a law, an order of behavior in which breaking it would bring consequences. You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. Genesis 2, 16 and 17. It's worth noting that this law, or perhaps more palatably referred to as a command, is not one that gets wrapped up in the squalor over the Old Testament law. That is, I have never heard anyone speak ill of this command. How could God create such a difficult law? But always, how could Adam and Eve not keep such a simple command? The truth of this command is that God gave it because he loves his children, his creation. From the beginning, God is always and only good. This is the first waypoint on the map that our loving father gave to his children. Waypoint number one, God is always and only good. God is not a wrath-filled dictator, but a loving father who seeks to protect his children. This simple command, however, brings forth devastating consequences and sets us out on our journey to discover what God had in mind when he spoke his law into the hearts of his people. It is also at this moment that we discover another waypoint in our journey. Waypoint number two. God speaks his laws, commands, for the good of his people. When God informed his children that they are not to eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, he did not require a blind, arbitrary obedience. Rather, he painted the whole devastating picture for them. Eat the fruit and you will die. Notice, the result of eating the fruit is not that of discipline. If you eat that fruit, I will kill you. But of reality, if you eat the fruit, you will die. Eating the fruit, that is, breaking the command, will carry with it the natural consequence of death. In the same way that sticking your hand on a hot stove will carry the natural consequence of a trip to the emergency room. Remember, God is always and only good, and he gives commands for the good of his people. Fast forward to Genesis 4. Cain killed Abel, and interestingly enough, did not receive the death penalty, but got sent away and marked in order to protect his life. This sounds eerily familiar to the city of refuge laws pertaining to accidental killing. Perhaps a topic for another quest. Continuing on, we find Noah and his family living faithfully among a world of evil in Genesis chapters 6 through 9, the Tower of Babel in Genesis 10, and finally the calling of Abraham in Genesis 12. It is in Abraham's story, that we get the next waypoint in our quest. It is also at this point that God revealed his true intentions. Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you, and I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great, so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Genesis 12, verses 1 through 3. God called his people out. Called out. Have you ever been part of a club? Maybe a secret underground ninja clan or a black ops assassin crew? Okay, how about Sam's Club or Costco? Anytime you draw a particular group of people out of the mass of those who exist and dub them special, things have to be put in place to keep them separate. A secret handshake, a password, a code of conduct, laws. Take, for instance, a group of people who called and separated themselves from the mass of those walking around in red coats. Once separated, a constitution, a government, and laws Had to be set in place in order to keep the people separate and living differently than before. This is different in more than exchanging red coats for blue ones, by the way. Fundamental changes had to be safeguarded in order to make a radically different people. Once God set apart His people, He had to set up the Constitution, the government, and the laws in order to keep them living differently than the multitudes surrounding them. God cannot simply take his people out of all the other peoples of the world, sprinkle a new name over them, and be done with it. He had to take several major courses of action in order to put in place an identity that would never be confused with any other people group, past or present. He had to set about the work of genuinely redeeming his people remaking them into his own image. It is at this moment that we step back onto the path of our quest. Enter Moses and the Exodus. Exodus chapter six finds us at the threshold of God's deepest intentions. Here we are privy to a conversation between God and Moses in which Moses is asked to deliver a message to the people of Israel. This moment in time may or may not be the impetus for all future check yes or no notes sent in elementary schools throughout history. You be the judge. Say therefore to the people of Israel, I am the Lord and I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians and I will deliver you from slavery to them and I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great acts of judgment. I will take you to be my people, and I will be your God, and you shall know that I am the Lord your God, who has brought you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. I will bring you into the land that I swore to give to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. I will give it to you for a possession. I am the Lord. Exodus 6, verses 6 through 8. Before going any further, it seems necessary to mention Joel Richardson and his work, Sinai to Zion, the untold story of the triumphant return of Jesus. It is this work that first revealed to me the reality of Sinai and the Exodus moment. For the sake of this writing, I will mention those necessary waypoints in our quest, painted with broad strokes, and for your further study on the topic, I would commend Joel's work to you. Now, back to the quest. As God sends his note, his proposal to his people, Israel, we, the reader, wait with bated breath for their response. If you know this story, you know that this is no simple stroll in the park for Israel and the mixed multitude. No, this quest is full of pitfalls, booby traps, challenges, and villains. God has his work cut out for him as we find Israel enslaved to a pantheon of Egyptian gods with Pharaoh sitting atop the throne calling the shots. God's intent is simple. One, I will bring you out from your burdens, slavery. Two, I will redeem you. Three, I will take you for myself and give you a home. As God approaches his people, and the one who has laid illegitimate claim to his bride, he has in mind much more than a simple rescue mission. A deeply tragic reality of our world today is the existence of human trafficking, an empire of stealing, buying, and selling human beings for the perverted pleasure of another. Imagine, if you will, you find yourself at the base of an operation set to expose a ring of human traffickers, As you listen to the plan being detailed by the officer in charge, you nod in agreement as you anxiously wait for the moment of deployment. Then, suddenly, as if awoken from a dream, your head jolts up. Surely you didn't just hear what you thought you heard. There is no plan to rescue the girls? The only target is the bad guy? In shock, You can't believe the team is missing the most critical element of the mission, rescuing the girls. Sure, the bad guy needs to be captured and brought to justice, but what about the girls? If the girls are simply freed from their slavery, it will only be a matter of time before they are under the thumb of another slave master. Without a new or renewed identity, one that pulls the girls out and completely separates them from their current state, the unavoidable outcome is a rapid descent back into slavery. Thankfully, God has in mind much more than simply beating up the bad guy. Because the truth is, there will always be another bad guy, another suitor, another false god. God's pursuit is much greater. He pursues a bride, the greatest of treasures. It is in this pursuit that Israel becomes more than a slave, more than a people group. Israel will take on a new identity. In the midst of all the nations of the earth, God offers his hand to one people, his people, his treasured possession, which he calls his Segula. Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my Segula, my treasured possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. Exodus 19, Verses 5 and 6. God's pursuit brings with it the third waypoint in our quest. Waypoint number 3. God's priority is the renewal of his people's identity, not simply defeating the bad guy. God is after a treasured possession, a bride, who has been stained and defiled by years spent in slavery in a country devoted to false gods living in opposition to the one and only true and living God. God is after redemption. On the heels of defeating the horde of Egyptian gods, culminating in the crushing defeat of the Egyptian army at the bottom of the Red Sea, God delivers his people to the base of Mount Sinai and sets the date of the wedding. Read Exodus 19. God has declared his intentions to make Israel his treasured possession, and set forth the terms. All the people of Israel have to do is obey God's voice and keep his covenant. Unsurprisingly, the people declare, Yes, all that the Lord has spoken, we will do. Exodus 19 and verse 8. Cue the music, the lights, everyone, please rise. The groom has arrived. I do. I don't. As the wedding ceremony progresses, we find ourselves at the quintessential moment where the rubber meets the road, the vows of God's marriage to Israel. Exodus 20, verses 1 through 17. Do you, Israel, take the Lord to be your lawfully wedded God and husband for all generations to come? Do you promise not to make and worship any false gods, or idols? To not take on the name of the Lord in vain? To make it worthless? To remember the Sabbath and keep it holy? Do you promise to honor your father and mother? To never murder, commit adultery, steal, bear false witness, or covet? With eager anticipation, the audience waits as the bride draws in a deep breath. Will she say, yes, or will she run for the hills? All the people answered with one voice and said, All the words that the Lord has spoken, we will do. Exodus 24 and verse 3. She said, Yes! With that the ring is put on the finger. And the Lord said to Moses, You are to speak to the people of Israel and say, Above all, you shall keep my Sabbaths. For this is a sign between me and you throughout your generations, that you may know that I, the Lord, sanctify you. Exodus 31, verses 12 and 13. The marriage certificate is signed and delivered. And he gave to Moses, when he had finished speaking with him on Mount Sinai, the two tablets of the testimony, tablets of stone written with the finger of God. Exodus thirty-one eighteen, And finally, it's time for the reception and the marriage feast. Oh, what a joyous occasion. As we look in on the happy groom and bride, we expect to see pure bliss and complete devotion as they gaze into each other's eyes, perhaps sharing the first dance. Yet, if you know this story, if you've traveled this part of our quest before, You know tragedy lurks in the shadows. As Moses remains with the Lord on top of the mountain, finalizing those precious details for what will be the rest of the happy couple's lives together, the bride stumbles in a big way. Exodus 32 reveals the newlywed bride in a panic over the delay of her groom. As she pleads with Aaron, Moses' brother, to do something, He comes up with the brilliant plan to simply replace the groom with another in the middle of the celebration. He asks for all their gold and jewelry to be donated, fashions a golden calf, and declares it to be the groom, the God who brought them out of slavery and redeemed them. Israel, the bride, rejoices, and we find them rising up early the next day to offer burnt offerings peace offerings, and sit down to eat and drink and rise up to play. This sitting down to eat and drink and rising up to play sounds innocent enough, but if you remember, the Lord is not worshipped by or through golden images. This is how the Egyptian gods were worshipped. As Israel draws upon their history in Egypt, we see the inevitability of a rescue plan that only has the defeat of the bad guy playing out. The villain has been defeated, sure enough, but the redeeming identity of the newly married wife hasn't fully taken root yet. The bride finds herself defaulting to her previous behavior. Israel has stepped out on her groom, right back into the arms of her former lover, Egypt, sitting down to eat and drink then rising up to play, a Hebraism for an orgy. Before the ink even dried on the marriage certificate, Israel had forgotten her vows and returned wholeheartedly to her prior way of life, her previous suitor. What is the point of the vows in a wedding if not to govern the behavior of the bride and groom and safeguard the relationship From any potential pitfall when was the last time that you dear reader reflected on your wedding vows or sat through a wedding ceremony and thought those poor souls how will they ever live up to such oppressive and difficult vows probably never i don't know that i have ever heard traditional wedding vows spoken of as oppressive or difficult to love and to cherish for better or for worse, for richer or for poorer, in sickness and in health, till death do us part. Certainly, in our culture today, the till death do us part aspect to wedding vows might seem like an impossibility. Yet, at least in the beginning of any heart-eyed lover's dreams, till death do us part seems like the most cherished reality to be grasped. It isn't until that love-struck couple is infected by the world around them that forever seems unbearable. It's worth noting that the infection is not inevitable. In the same way, the adultery of Israel was not unavoidable either. God does not call his children to impossibilities, but rather to holiness, in the same way that he is holy. Leviticus 19 and verse 2. He is completely holy, set apart, for his bride alone, never tempted to choose another. Because of that, we are able to be completely holy, set apart, for our God alone, never entertaining another suitor or choosing another God. In the same way, as physical husbands and wives, We are not destined to stray or fall out of love, but rather empowered to holiness in marriage. Deep breath. Let's take a breath for just a moment. If you have not yet stopped to ponder the fact that I keep calling the Ten Commandments wedding vows, please do so. How does that change your understanding, your heart, towards those commands? or laws. Now, truth be told, I assume most people reading this do not have a huge problem with those Ten Commands, at least not in the way we Christians typically reinterpret the fourth command. Remember the Sabbath and keep it holy. That is, remember to go to church on Sundays. Once the Sabbath command is dealt with and adapted to today's interpretation All ten commands generally fall right into place in our rote expression of God's expectations on our lives. Christians generally have no heartburn professing these vows. Do you, insert your name here, vow to take the Lord your God to be your only God forever? Never make or serve another God, idol. Not take his name in vain. Remember the Sabbath, Sunday. And make it holy. Go to church. Honor your parents, not murder, not commit adultery, not steal, not bear false witness, and not covet. Of course you do. Or at least we all do in word, right? I mean, we, Christ followers, believers in the God of the Bible, would have been laughed down the aisle and right out of the church if we dared stand at the altar and not even say, I do, to the vows. Can you imagine it? You're at a wedding, listening to the beautiful ceremony, only to arrive at the vows to hear, I don't. But we can still be married, right? While the vows are publicly declared, the action of living out those vows is another thing completely that, unfortunately, happens behind closed doors. All too often, our vows are public, while the keeping of our vows is private. However, this is not how God gives his commands, his vows. Claimed God gave these vows as a sign between him and his bride and as evidence to the rest of the world. They were and continue to be a testimony to the exclusivity of the relationship. And the Lord said to Moses, You are to speak to the people of Israel and say, Above all, you shall keep my Sabbaths, for this is a sign between me and you throughout your generations, that you may know that I, the Lord, sanctify you. Therefore, the people of Israel shall keep the Sabbath, observing the Sabbath throughout their generations as a covenant forever. Exodus 31, 12-16 here we see Exodus 31 specifically point out the Sabbath in the list of vows that serve as a sign between God and his bride. Leviticus 20, verses 24 through 26, brings the whole of God's statutes and laws into setting the bride apart. But I have said to you, You shall inherit their land, and I will give it to you to possess. A land flowing with milk and honey. I am the Lord your God, who has separated you from the peoples. You shall therefore separate the clean beast from the unclean, and the unclean bird from the clean. You shall not make yourselves detestable by beast or by bird or by anything with which the ground crawls, which I have set apart for you to hold unclean. You shall be holy to me, for I the Lord am holy and have separated you from the peoples, that you should be mine. On the other hand, Deuteronomy 4 identifies the whole of God's law as a sign between them, God and his bride, and the rest of the nations on earth. And now, O Israel, listen to the statutes and the rules that I am teaching you, and do them, that you may live, and go in and take possession of the land that the Lord, the God of your fathers, is giving you. Keep them, and do them, for that will be your wisdom and your understanding in the sight of the peoples, who, when they hear all these statutes, will say, Surely, This great nation is a wise and understanding people. For what great nation is there that has a God so near to it as the Lord our God is to us whenever we call upon him? And what great nation is there that has statutes and rules so righteous as all this law that I set before you today? Deuteronomy 4, verses 1 through 8. In our quest to discover the original intent of God's law, the passage from Deuteronomy 4 above offers incredible insight and implications that send us catapulting down the path toward our goal. I saw the sign. Waypoint number four God gives His law to set apart His people, His bride. Waypoint number five God gives His law as a sign, proof of his covenant, his, I do. Waypoint number six, God gives his law for our wisdom and understanding. What would you call a marriage in which only one party was set apart as special among all the rest of the suitors in the world? You probably would not call it a marriage for starters. It's a bit of a ridiculous concept, I know, but it makes a point too often ignored in the marriage of God and his people. Both parties must be set apart, and each party is set apart by the other. That is, a husband is set apart or made special, sanctified by his wife, while she is set apart, made special, and sanctified by him. We have no problem professing that we are sanctified by God. But did you realize that you sanctify God as well? Leviticus 22, 31 through 33 reads, So you shall keep my commandments and do them. I am the Lord. And you shall not profane my holy name, that I may be sanctified among the people of Israel. I am the Lord who sanctifies you, who brought you out of the land of Egypt to be your God. I am the Lord. When we take on the name of our God, our husband, we are declaring him sanctified, set apart among all other suitors. We accomplish this task in the same way that any spouse does, by keeping our vows. These vows, like any vows, are not exhaustive. They are not meant to be. God's vows are a framework. They define parameters. His vows are a pole star for all marital actions. Vows guide behavior and motive. They give direction and boundaries to emotions and actions. Vows as Deuteronomy 4, verse 6 expresses, are the wisdom and understanding of those who keep them. In other words, the vows a bride and groom take are not magically binding, altering the very mental and emotional state of the one swearing. On the contrary, the vows taken guide each spouse's actions and motives. Why should I serve my wife? because I vowed to love her. Well, under what circumstances should I love her? In sickness and in health, for richer or for poorer, etc. Again, this is not some magic trick or secret spell that once uttered binds the speaker to obedience. The power of vows or laws to be wisdom and understanding to the adherents comes from following them through. Anyone who has ever spent time in the kitchen baking some delicious dessert or loaf of bread knows that the directions given in the recipe serve to bring wisdom and understanding to the baker. When the directions are followed and those perfectly crisp yet chewy chocolate chip cookies are placed in the hands of eager recipients, the end result is a proclamation of wisdom and understanding on behalf of the baker. These are amazing! What's amazing in these moments is that the recipe rarely gets the credit. Rarer still, the creator of the recipe. The most recent baker always gets the credit for the wisdom and understanding in the culinary arts. Remember waypoint number two? God always gives his law for the good of his people. When his laws are obeyed, his followers come out on top like brilliant savants. And what's incredible is the wisdom and understanding don't end there. As any baker who takes the leap from dabbling in the kitchen to fully realized career can attest to, the wisdom and understanding that began with the first perhaps simple or general recipe, has grown to original creations.